Thank you for listening to Voices of UMass Med, a podcast produced by the University of Massachusetts Medical School's Office of Communications. Welcome to the Voices of UMass Med. Stephen Hatch is our guest today on Voices of UMass Med. He is a physician, an associate professor of medicine at the University of Massachusetts Medical School, and an accomplished author of three books. Dr. Stephen Hatch, thank you for taking time to talk to us. Thanks for having me. So all three of your books have uh, a bit of a common theme that I want you to talk a little bit more about. They sort of pull back the curtain on some aspect of medicine that uh, might not be obvious to the average person. Uh, the most dramatic is captured in your book, Inferno, and this was inspired by an experience that you had in 2014 at the height of the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. You decided to go to Liberia and spend time working in an Ebola treatment unit. So can you take us back to that time and maybe start with what compelled you to go? Sure. Um, I had gone to Liberia the year before the outbreak started. Um, as a referral from a friend who had been going back and forth there. And uh, they said, oh, you should come to Liberia, see if there's any infectious disease projects that you'd be interested in doing. Yeah, we and should so, say you're an infectious disease specialist. Yeah, and uh, we, so we went there in November of 2013 and the outbreak started in 2014. So just as the outbreak was becoming rampant in Liberia, I realized that people I knew uh, were involved and so I made a resolution once some of those people I knew got infected that I was going to do what I could to go and help out uh, in the efforts to stamp the disease out. And so what did you end up doing uh, when you returned to the country during the epidemic? So I worked as a physician taking care of patients who had Ebola infection in an Ebola treatment unit. Um, my first experience was in Monrovia, but when I came back, I worked with a group that had a treatment unit in rural Liberia uh, about five hours away from the capital uh, in a place called Bong County. And um, really, as different as it was, what I did for the most part was what I do here in the United States, which is take care of patients, round on patients, make medical plans, work with the rest of the, the staff. It was its own mini hospital. And although it was a much, much stripped down version of the kind of work that I do here at the university, which has you know, 10,000 employees, and there were only 200 employees mm -hmm. at the Ebola treatment unit, in many ways the features really are exactly the same. Did it feel the same though? Were you scared? I was not scared. I, get the, I got that question a lot. And one of the reasons why, and it wasn't just me, nobody was really scared. Mm -hmm. Um, is we took the proper precautions to do the job that we knew that we needed to do. So we were trained well, yeah. and um, it was a controlled environment, both for the patients and for the staff. Yeah. So we all understood that getting infected was a risk that we ran, but that the protocols were in place to keep us as safe as possible. So that leads me into something I was wondering about, because back here stateside, the images that we saw in the media were of people covered head to toe, probably in multiple layers, it looked like spacesuits, right? It was. And uh, so can you describe what that's like? I mean, not only in the heat, right, of Liberia and being in that African country, so the sensory aspect, just the emotional aspect, and how was it as a physician to work through all those layers and protection? It, it, it actually formed an important series of meditations that I had on the nature of being a physician when I wrote the book, because when you're behind all those layers, 
it affects you not only in your ability to make a proper clinical judgment where physical exam, which is really the oldest feature of Western medicine that hasn't changed, so many things about what we do as doctors are different than what they did 2,000 years ago in ancient Rome and Greece, and yet physical exam has always been the centerpiece of that long-standing tradition. When you're behind all of those layers of polymers, your ability to assess a patient's condition, because not everybody had just Ebola, people had other problems for which we had medications to treat, but we needed to know what they were, and so it was limiting. And then I think the much more profound problem was is that these people were experiencing a form of not just um, abject fear that they were going to die, because as scared as people were in the United States of watching people walk around in spacesuits, these people were watching people in spacesuits come directly up to them. And so that induced um, terrible fear, but also depression that they were feeling like they were going to come to the end of their lives. And in the case of half of the patients, that was correct. And so our ability to minister to their emotional needs, the fear, the, the pastoral aspect of care that we engage in as physicians was something that was also challenged. And we had to think about ways around both of those problems. How do we get the best information we can? And how do we be caregivers in the most humane way possible? So how did you find yourself doing that? You know, touch is so important, right? Eye contact is so important. Eye contact actually was probably, from my standpoint, if not the most important, certainly one of the two or three most important things because you were covered head to toe with the exception of your eyes. So since eyes are the one thing that you had, I made an absolute point of making sure I made maximal eye contact with patients. And then the, the next thing I did was, or as part of that, was to make sure that my eye contact with them was at their level. So I got down on my knees a lot. And I spent a lot of time, it was, um, both units were a concrete floor. And so I spent a lot of time on that concrete floor sitting in, you know, cross-legged in my uh, spacesuit while I, so that I could look at patients or even have them look down at me to give them a sense of power and control since they felt completely out of control um, throughout that experience. Part of the reason that you were down on your knees because you were dealing with pediatric patients were the kids or because or you're a tall guy? No, well, it's <laughs> partly because I'm a tall guy and it's partly because these patients were lying in, in cots. Oh, I see. And they didn't have the energy to stand up. I see. And so they, you know, I had to, they were probably at two feet. And so I had to sit down so that they could look and at me. And how well equipped did you feel to go into a scenario like that? And I'm wondering actually, like, did it influence how you have cared for patients since you came back? It, it didn't change. It emphasized to me aspects of care that I had been aware of before, but really underscored to me the importance, especially of eye contact, of talking to a patient at their eye level, of really stepping into their shoes when you encounter a patient lying in a bed. Most of my clinical practice in the United States is not taking care of relatively healthy outpatients, but taking care of fairly sick inpatients. So the kind of emotions that were going through my patients in Liberia are not totally dissimilar to the kind of patients I see in the United States. Um, there's a, a commonality of um, experience that they have, of fear, of depression, anxiety, 
And so I see my role, at least in part, as doing everything I can to allay those fears, to negate them, to take their focus away from that, and to really give them some form of hope. Mm. How do you uh, convey that to the medical students that you work with, sort of that underlying compassion for people who are in vulnerable positions that they're going to come across every day? I always, when I work with students on the floors, one of the points I try to make whenever we step outside a room is to do a little teaching session about looking at a patient at eye level. And, and I emphasize to them, especially when a group of doctors come in, because then the effect is multiplied even more. They have a bunch of doctors standing around a patient's bedside looking down on a patient. And uh, there's a, uh, there was a, a movie that uh, came out many years ago, which is available on YouTube, called The Singing Detective. And it deals with a patient who suffers from a terrible skin condition. And uh, one of the scenes is one in which, you know, they, they play for comic effect. They, ex yeah. they exaggerate just how awful that is. And so the camera angle is looking straight up at all of the doctors looking back down on the patient. As if it's a specimen. Right. right. <laughs> so um, a, a few years back when your book came out, I read it, and I wasn't really thinking that we would be having this conversation, but there were some images that were so stark that they have they stay with the reader um, and one I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about if you remember it was when a mother and daughter came together to uh, the ETU where you were yeah it's uh, I get this question more than once uh, and it's one that I still have a very hard time talking about uh, it involves uh, a mother who did not have the infection and a daughter who did um, and what happens in the, uh, in the Ebola treatment unit is we have one side of the hospital is for people who we think may have the infection but we don't know. So we have to send their blood off for a test to find out do they or do they not have the infection. The other side of the hospital is for people who we know have the infection, their test is positive. Half of those patients on that side did not survive. and the level of fear and anxiety of people actually on the suspect side, the people who don't know whether they're gonna go, actually turned out to be higher mm. than the level of anxiety on the other side. And what, what my personal observation was is that the other side wasn't so much anxiety, it was depression. And um, what happened in this story was um, uh, this, uh, at the end of the afternoon, we would get the test results back of the patients who had been admitted the previous evening. And almost always, all of the family members were infected. There were a few exceptions. Um, but this was the only time that I can recall where it was split right down the middle. So um, Within that family. Within the family. So it was only the, uh, I, I don't know where the father was, and I don't know if there were other family members, but this mother and her daughter had to, had to be separated. Mm. And uh, I, I had to be the one to, to do that. And um, their reaction to me uh, was one of complete fear. And as I looked back on that experience, and I continue to look back on that experience, um, they 
were correct in having the set of assumptions that they did. And you know, one of the things that's trained in you very early on as a physician is to is to look at your intentions in mm. pure ways and to look at yourself based on those intentions. And you know, people who go to medical school almost universally go in with those kind of good intentions. They want to ease suffering. They want to conquer death when appropriate. Um, but patients don't look at doctors that way always. Um, and this was a situation in which they were looking at, at a doctor as a harbinger of something horrible. And they did that appropriately because yeah. something horrible did because happen. Because of the time and the place. Yeah. 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 And so uh, it, was a, uh, it, was a, it was a disturbing experience for me. It was a disturbing experience to watch that happen. Yeah. Uh, you must have been witness to so many powerful stories, not just in Liberia, but throughout your career. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about why you feel it's important to capture them, you know, to, to make sure that those stories are shared? I think that my goal whenever I, I try to write about medicine is I want to try to give people who are not doctors a way of looking at and thinking about the kind of problems that we as doctors do after years of training we do it as second nature and we often get away from our humanity in our day-to-day -day job because if we remained open to the emotional power of every patient interaction, it would destroy us, it would mm. overwhelm us. So we, we have to kind of short circuit that. But when I write, I wanna to try to get back to that point. I wanna to try to understand what those interactions are about. And then at other times when I write, I wanna work through mentally ways in which I think about how do we give care yeah. to people? When do we do things right and when do we not do things right? Mm. It's a, it's a really interesting way to use sort of the power of storytelling to improve medicine. I'm curious, since the uh, outbreak ended, have you been able to visit any of the patients who you met or any of the people you worked with during that time? So uh, my role in the outbreak was I worked in the Ebola treatment unit just as the epidemic was peaking and a little bit past the peak in November of 2014 and October of 2014. And then I returned in January and February of 2015 um, when the outbreak was really at that point tailing off. And in the Ebola treatment unit, there were almost no, there were plenty of patients on the suspect side, but their tests always came out negative and they were sent home. And I was actually not working in the ETU at that time. I was actually training people to go to other places where the outbreak was still on. Then I came back one last time a couple months later in June and I worked in Monrovia and I actually met one of the residents who I had become close with all the way back when I first went to Monrovia, and he had become infected, and he survived the experience. And I spent the next month working with him, but that first moment when I saw him in the hallway at John F. Kennedy Hospital in Monrovia, you know, and we ran to each other and we grabbed each other, mm -hmm. because we both knew what each of us had done, and obviously what I did was nothing compared to the experience that he lived through. But, you know, I felt this moment of, of real connection with somebody who had really truly been to the other side and back. Um, that was the one person. And then I ran into a few people that I worked with, but yeah. no other patients. What a moment of pure, you weren't expecting to see him, I would imagine. So like pure joy. Absolute joy. What a gift, huh?
from a pretty dark place in time. You're listening to Voices of UMass Med, featuring the people, ideas, and advances of the University of Massachusetts Medical School. So um, your most recent book is titled Snowball in a Blizzard, which is a great title. And I just, where did that come from? So Snowball in a Blizzard is a radiologist's joke about how difficult it is to interpret a mammogram. They say finding a tumor in a mammogram is akin to finding a snowball in a blizzard. And I heard that joke um, while I was doing my early training as a medical student, and I, I didn't really grasp it until many years later when there was a new set of guidelines about mammograms and there was a big public uproar over it, and I didn't understand the statistical underlying reasons for the new recommendation and the reaction. And so the book, uh, the, the title chapter of the book is an attempt for me to try to work through my understanding of what that whole episode meant and how statistics really influence how we think as doctors. So that's what it came to symbolize for you? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, right, I mean, that's a great point because uh, you talked about how doctors are perceived, and it, to many patients, doctors are perceived as being omnipotent, right? They have all the answers. And so your book sort of cracked away at that, how even the most gifted physician has to operate in this context of not having clarity a lot of the time. Is, is, am I picking up on that right? Is yeah. that what you were trying to? Is the notion that a physician knows all, and, and moreover, that a physician has a variety of tests which give you a, that the test just says yes or no, yes or no <laughs> that, um, that both of those things are misconceptions and the misconceptions can be dangerous or even deadly. Give us an example of that, like things that might lead to treatments where the treatments could be harmful? Exactly. Yeah. Um, a lot of what the book focuses on is how we overreact to tests, particularly when tests are positive, um, but there's other data that would suggest that that test may not in fact be positive. Um, it, it uses the issue of the mammogram recommendations because when mammograms are often portrayed, screening mammograms to prevent disease, what's often left out of that discussion, and certainly what was left out of that discussion in 2009 when those recommendations came out was that there can be overcalls, there can be times when people think that there may be tumors when they're not there, and then that leads to a whole series of downstream consequences for patients, um, which can be quite dramatic. So do you think patients appreciate the uncertainty that exists in medicine. And I guess my question would be, what is it that you would want patients to know, right? What do you want these consumers to sort of uh, know as they make their way through the health system and get test results that they have to help decipher? So you asked me if patients appreciate uncertainty. <laughs> I'm not even sure that doctors appreciate it. I yeah. think what part of what drove me to write this book was a sense that even within our profession, yeah. this is an underappreciated phenomenon. So it was meant to 
really move patients and physicians toward an understanding that what has to happen is a discussion about how certain can you be that a test really tells you what you think instead of just assuming that all tests up front tell you the exact truth. And I think that recommendations that doctors make to their patients should always be attached to a strength of recommendation. So I always have conversations with my patients saying, I feel strongly that you should get this treatment. Uh -huh. I don't feel strongly that you should get this treatment. I'll give you a specific I example. See. Is I'm an infectious disease doctor. I deal a lot with people getting antibiotics. So when people get antibiotics, there's a lot in the literature right now about something called probiotics, which is you want to give back the good flora because you're killing the bad bacteria. So we're going to give you some good bacteria. In principle, that's almost certainly correct. The reality is we haven't really worked out how to do that. Yeah. And so we don't know if it works. We also don't appear to see any harm from taking probiotics. So if I have some patients who are asking me about probiotics and they say, you know, doc, I really want to take probiotics. I say, fine. If they say, you know, doc, I don't know. I would say, there's no evidence one way or the other, but I'm not gonna argue with a patient about it. I don't think that right now we've got the evidence so that I would make a recommendation to them to take it. Got it. When did you know that you wanted to be a doctor? Most people who become physicians know from a very early age that they wanna be a doctor. And so were you part of that club? I was definitely not part of that group. You uh, were not. For me, this came as a later in life uh, revelation when I was actually getting my PhD in English literature in Cleveland, Ohio, and I needed to pick up a part-time job, and so I picked up a part-time job in a hospital, and once I saw what was going on around me, I got interested, and specifically what interested me is the things that I've always loved are um, science, but I never really pictured myself working in a laboratory all day, so I, I didn't pursue sciences as an undergrad. I love, I love education. It's one of the reasons why I went to get a PhD in English literature is because I wanted to teach, and I still get to do that. And I was surprised to see how much teaching doctors do for their patients. And then the third aspect was I like taking care of people. And um, I thought I would do that as a teacher, and now I get to do it as a doctor. And I really get to incorporate these three things in a blend that I just feel like it was the luckiest mistake that ever happened to me because I would have never thought about it until I just happened to land this job working in a hospital. And your ace in the hole was the English literature PhD, right? Which explains why you love writing so much and sharing these stories, I suppose. Yeah, although I've read a lot of stuff from English <laughs> PhDs that isn't very good. Maybe that's why I washed out. Yeah, that's terrific. Well, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for making time. Thanks, Jen. I appreciate it. You've been listening to a conversation with Dr. Stephen Hatch, a physician, associate professor of medicine at the University of Massachusetts Medical School, and an author of three books on medicine. Thank you for listening to Voices of UMass Med, a podcast produced by the Office of Communications at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Visit our website at umassmed.edu news, where you can find all of our podcasts. And follow us on Facebook at UMass Med, on LinkedIn, 
at University of Massachusetts Medical School and on Twitter at UMass Medical.